great to be together. I am uh, always uh, a little leery of making you stop loving each other so much. So anyway, it's good to be together. I, I, uh, l- let me begin by telling you who I am. I'm not sure that everyone in the room knows who I am and why I'm standing up here, but um, uh, I, I grew up in Southern California. Um, while the woman that I would marry, Judy, you'll meet her next week, um, and by the way, we'll celebrate 39 years of marriage in August this summer. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and three kids and 10 grandkids, and that's pretty cool, too. Um, anyway, my wife grew up on a dairy farm in Norfolk, Nebraska. So I'm in Southern California. She's in Norfolk, Nebraska. Did you ever think about this? Like, we're growing up, we're virtually the same age, and we have no clue about each other at all, right? So through a bizarre set of circumstances that could only have been set up and designed by a loving father, right, I, something of a prodigal son at the time, ended up being invited to play basketball at UNK. You can't spell drunk without UNK. <laughs> you know, Carney, right? And so Judy and I met and married, and nine months and two weeks later, our firstborn son, Luke, was, was born, and um, we gave birth to Luke. Eighteen months after that, Jake was born. Um, so we had two kids while we were in undergrad in, in Kearney, um, and, of, and of course, Jake was supposed to be a girl, by the way. Luke was supposed to be a girl, too, by the way, but anyway, that, that's a whole other story. But Katie, Jackie, we were kind of going back and forth, but he spent a couple days without a name. So anyway, then we moved to Chicago, the Chicago area for grad school, where we welcomed Emily 23 months after that, after Jake was born, and, and, and it was there that I earned my Master of Divinity degree. At age 27, Judy and I moved to San Diego for our first shepherding role in our first local church. And after that, I would, I, I would actually um, move then, um, after that seven years, we moved to Burbank, California, and we were there for 11 years. And it was in that time frame that I received a sabbatical. Um, which was incredibly important for me in my life and our journey and so forth. So anyway, all of our kids would now call Southern California home in the sense that that's where they grew up, right? That was their formative years, right? Um, And then we moved back to Nebraska where God began a journey after our kids had all moved out, gotten married, all of that stuff. We we moved back to Nebraska. um, And God began a journey with us that leads to what I want to share with you this morning, and that is the idea of a particular part of the idea of the life-giving lifestyle, um, and how the Bible fits in to that manner of finding life in an intimate relationship with Jesus and a passion for the greater progress of the kingdom. So anyway, after two and a half years in Holdridge, Nebraska, where we moved from California, um, we then moved to Ashland, Nebraska, where we started Riverview Community Church, and then Judy and I invited Jake to come and help us in the planting of that church there in Ashland, and then we sent him out to start Finding Life Church in Omaha which was his vision and desire and call from God, and you know that story, right, because you all are that story, which is pretty awesome, by the way, for me, for this dad, okay, just so you know. Um, So anyway, after 28 years pastoring local church gatherings of God's people, right, I became the church planting director for the Midwest District, a position that that Jake now holds, by the way, since I moved out out, uh, three years ago, Judy and I moved out to San Francisco, where we now live and serve as a pastor to pastors in the Western District of the Evangelical Free Church of America. So it's Northern California, Northern Nevada, about 100 or so pastors, uh, something over 50 churches, 
um, that kind of thing. I'm the Western District Superintendent for the Evangelical Free Church of America, which is a very long official sounding name, which only means that now I'm a denominational employee rather than an actual pastor, which was a difficult adjustment for me to make, actually. But it's been an incredible story, a denominational employee. And Judy and I currently live in San Francisco, as I mentioned, with, with friends that we've come to know and to love with all of our hearts. And we're praying and we're watching and we're believing that God is drawing them to his heart to find life. Um, and he's doing it. We're seeing some really cool things happening even now. So let me say this now with no small degree of intentionality. Thank you for releasing my son into a season of sabbatical. You may not all understand what all of that means, the ins and outs, whys. I mean, most professions don't even get that kind of an opportunity. Um, some do, some don't. But in any case, what I want to do is, is to invite you into an active life of prayer for Jake during this time. Um, and maybe you could pray with me and pray the way that I'm praying for him. Three things, really, maybe four things. Rest, favor, and a soul smile. Let me explain that. I'm praying that Jake would find rest, not that he would rest, but that he would actually find rest. If you think that through, I think you'll understand what I mean. And then favor, okay? Again, not that he would earn God's favor by using the time well while on sabbatical, but in fact, that he would find God's favor regardless of how he uses the time, which takes you back to the first request, doesn't it? Because when we know we have the favor of God, that's when we can rest, right? And we sang all about it this morning in worship, didn't we? And then thirdly, a, 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 what I'm calling a soul smile. You with me on that? Um, particularly in regard to his future, that he could smile at the future. Now again, not that he would define that preferred future and then you know, execute it perfectly, but that he would find a heart-level smile that indicates his fascination for the mystery of the future that God will unfold to him. You see, I think that when we live in that kind of a demeanor, that kind of a, a place of rest, this is, pray it for yourselves. This is a great place from which to live our lives, isn't it? Rest and favor and a soul smile. I, I guess the summary of these three is that he would find renewed belief, which is what I want to speak with you about this morning. See, that's my prayer for me, and that's my prayer for all of you, because I have come to believe that, that is, finding renewed belief, believing, I think that is Jesus' prayer for us all, that we would be believers in a very living and vibrant kind of a way. So uh, you are finding life church, right? And so in these four findings, let's ask God to allow Jake to find life. It's God's intention that we find life in his name, right? In fact, it's the verse that I want to kind of really speak from this morning, John 20, let me read for you verse 30 and 31. It says this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Kind of a theme verse for this church. So let's pray as we set our hearts right to hear what God might have to say to us today. Father, we um, are, are grateful for moments like these, which we take apart from the rest of life 
in order to gather ourselves before you and rest, rest in you, rest in the finished work of Jesus, rest in the reality that you have given us not only release from all that has bound us up in the past, but in fact you've released us into a future of, of unknown, incredible, bountiful, mysterious future, uh, life, uh, productivity, joy, peace, all these things that Jesus purchased with his own blood. So we give you thanks that that's true, and ask that you would make us believers, and that we might live as believers in you, and that out of that place of belief, we would find the life that we've all been looking for. And we ask it in Jesus' name who makes it possible. Amen. Okay, so I want to talk about the Bible today. We have a very interesting relationship with the Bible, I think. We are people of the word, or so we claim, right? That's like a a theme in our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, which you're a part of, in case you didn't know that. Um, And so we are people of the word. And by that, we mean that we let the Bible speak for itself and we accept it. That we seek for the truth, the accuracy of it, and we accept it. We recognize it as higher than us. Okay, We don't make stuff up as we go along, which is what many in the world do today. All of the religions of the world are really what man has made up in order to attempt to reach God in some kind of way by his own efforts, right? which is the exact opposite of the message from the beginning to the end of this book. The first parts of it may feel or sound a bit like we're trying to earn, you know, keep the law and earn our favor, but that's not the message there. And so if, you, if you've only rested there, then you've missed the message, right? So from front to back, we have the exact same message, and, and that is that we can't make stuff up as we go along. We've got to believe the Bible to be true, and if we will read all of it in its context and as it interprets itself and so forth, then, then we will believe that, that we will find the life that, that the Bible is actually offering. So we believe the Bible to be true. We believe the Bible to be accurate without error or contradiction in the original writings. Okay, And we believe the Bible is the very words of God. That is a humongous claim, isn't it? The very words of God. Very important. As such, we believe the Bible is life-giving, trustworthy, mystery-revealing, and utterly authoritative. When we go against the Bible, we bang our heads against a brick wall. It's pointless. We do not win that battle. So then we choose to surrender to whatever it says in here, no matter how challenging, mysterious, confounding, we surrender. And when we do, we find life. When we do, we find life. You see, the Father's intention was that he would write these words, compile these words, and preserve these words as God's words precisely so that we would not have to walk through this world and this life blindly. Now, if it's as authoritative and true as it is, then we will walk according to it even blindly at times. But he said that this word is a light to our path so that we don't have to walk blindly, right? And and so we come to it to find life and to find direction, to find the Father's intention. And it was that he would give us life, giving truth in these pages, if only we would believe. If only we would believe. The truth is here. We often choose not to believe. Fascinating, isn't it? So you all are in the midst of a series on the great sweeping story of the Bible. You've just finished an examination of the book of Exodus and the incredible history of God's involvement and intervention with his people, which 
by the way, is a perfect summary statement for the purpose of the entire Bible, that God is involved in intervening in our lives every moment of every day. Those who find life in Jesus find him to be involved and intervening in all who would believe in him. And in story after story, narrative after narrative, in the pages of this incredible book, we see the mystery of finding life unfold. Now, following me, you're going to hear from my wife, Judy, next Sunday, with an overview of what we've come to call the life-giving lifestyle. Most of you are very familiar with that. And then you will be heading into a review and a more in-depth examination of the four life-giving practices which form the life-giving lifestyle that we have chosen to live in, around which we have chosen to reproduce churches, et cetera, et cetera, which we've discovered, by the way, to be the most effective way to live at the heart level with Jesus and the world of people that he so loves. Because we've tried a lot of different ways of doing that over the years, and what we're looking for is something authentic, something real, not just religious, not just ritualistic. Some of those tools can be helpful but something real. We want to become life givers, to be life givers. And so all of our guidance and discovery was really mined from a life lived in the Bible. So let's start with how life-giving truth is the foundation for salvation and discipleship and and purpose and all life-giving beliefs. So the first thing I'd like you to remember today, and if you're writing anything down, you can write this down. Number one, the Word is a person, not a book. Okay, the Word we're people of the word. The word is a person, not a book. So let's set some simple but really large context. You know Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the very first book in the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. All right. So that sets a framework for us, doesn't it? Now, fast forward up to the book of John chapter 1 and verse 1, and it reads this way, in the beginning was the word. Wait, in the beginning God, in the beginning was the word. Yes, same person. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being. That has come into being. The Word is a person, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And the Trinity was at work in creation, Genesis 1, and now here we're reminded of that in John chapter 1. So that John, being this evangelist that he is, is writing to us about how we might know the one true and living God accurately, according to him, not according to us. We can imagine all kinds of things about who God might be, can't we? And we have done so. Just look at the plethora of world religions, right? And new ones are being created all the time. And we, we choose from this and a couple from column A and a few from shelf B and we, we, we make God up. Like we create God in our image as opposed to us being created in God's image, right? So we read the Bible not so much for its words, but for the Word, right? Who is revealed there. God inspired the biblical writers to reveal himself in precisely the way he wished. Not everything about God is in this book, right? These pages could not possibly contain everything there is to know about who God is. But everything he wanted us to know about him is in this book. That's pretty cool. And there's plenty here, by the way. Anybody in the room, like, plunge the depths and you have the full and complete mastery of this baby? Probably not, because I'm not sure we have the capacity for it. There is just so much of him. The Bible even says that God is incomprehensible in so many ways, and yet at the same time, he has said, I want you to know me. 
So a huge principle here is that, in fact, God wrote this book so that we would understand. And usually the simplest understanding, the simplest reading of something, anything that you might read here, is probably the accurate understanding. He wants you to get it. He's not tricking us. He's not hiding it from us. He wants us to understand him. And so, so what, what a great promise there is there. It's an invitation to discover a life of worship of the word. Worship of the word. Now, did you catch that? We don't worship the words of these pages in this book. We read the words in order to worship the word, the living word. We don't worship the written word, but we read, we use, we mine, we believe the written word, resulting in a pure worship of the living word and more powerful life in him. So Jesus said, he's quoted as saying by John in chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus' words. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. There it is. The life-giving truth embodied in the person of Christ. I am the truth. Jesus is the word. He is the embodiment of the way. He is the embodiment of the life and the truth. And that's why we no longer approach the Bible in order to master it like we do other textbooks in our educational processes, right? we got to master the material, right? I, I told you that I earned a Master of Divinity degree. It's because I'm supposed to have graduated and, and, and have mastered this. <laughs> how, how, like, arrogant is that even? right? And it's the wrong approach to this book. You see, this is the one unique book where you're not going to it to master it, but you're going to it until it masters you. Because it's a dynamic, powerful, life-giving book. So the word is a person, our master. Life-giving truth begins in clarifying why we use the Bible, and it's a core invitation. The, The core invitation of the Bible, when you read through it, is that we simply believe. What a mystery. So uh, the word is a person, not a book. That's number one. Number two, the word is to be believed. Okay? When we read the Bible, we are reading to discover its truth to believe. We spent the entire morning singing truths to believe. I don't know if you noticed this, but it's the way that I think. It's the way that I perceive. It's now how I've situated my life. I'm a person that lives out life-giving truth. I look everywhere to find what is the life-giving truth there that God is inviting me to believe. And every time you read the Bible, that's my invitation to you. It's God's invitation to you. Every time you would read anything there, ask him, what is the life-giving truth you are inviting me to believe? Help me believe it. Let me discover it and believe it, identify it and believe it. So Jesus, when being tempted by Satan, you'll remember prior to beginning his public life, Um, He quotes a well-known statement from the book of Deuteronomy in Matthew chapter 4. He repeats that, those words in Deuteronomy, right? When he answers Satan in his temptation and he says, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. See, it's life-giving, this truth of God. Matthew 4, 4. See, we live, we find life by every word proceeding from the mouth of God and written for us in these pages. That's where our life is to be found. Jesus did it. Let's follow his example, okay? But what are we to do with these words, these life-giving words? How are we to approach them? So we go back to the first book of the Bible to see just how God invited us to posture ourselves before him and before his written words. And that's in the 15th chapter of Genesis and verse 6, Genesis 15, 6. 
where it says of Abraham, then he believed in the Lord, and God, the Lord, he reckoned it to him as righteousness. There was this belief in God, in the message that God was giving to Abraham, that if he would believe in it, he would be converted. He would be transformed, right? He reckoned it to him as righteousness. In other words, prior to that time, Abraham was unrighteous. And when belief was applied, when faith was real, then he was claimed to be righteous. It was reckoned to him as righteous. It was a massive, life-changing, altering moment, which, by the way, brings the entire Bible together as, here is the truth of the gospel. The gospel is believing in Jesus whom God has sent so that you might be transferred from unrighteousness to righteousness and have a holy, perfect, in-union relationship with your Creator. There's the good news. That's the gospel. And it's all about belief. So again, Paul, another one of the writers, right, of much of the Newer Testament, quoted Genesis in Galatians chapter 3. And verse 6, he said, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so did James. In James chapter 2 and verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Wow. Wow. Are you kidding me? Friends with God? Is that actually possible? Anybody actually feel that way on a day-to-day basis? If you believe life-giving truth, then in fact you will feel like the friend of God. Jesus paid it all, we sang, so that we could be with God. It's all about what he did, not about what we might do. So the written word is there to be believed, and it's the tough reality of a life of growing in belief, right? Because we find ourselves like the man in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, remember this? Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe Help me in my unbelief, right? And in that life right there, anybody else living there every day? I think I believe. You know what? Part of this deal here, and I hope this frees, us, uh, frees up some of us to, to a pretty significant degree, and that is that in order for us to live a life of faith, we have to invite even welcome doubt. You see, if you, if you can see it with your eyes, then there's no doubt. It's there. It's reproducible in a laboratory, whatever. There it is. But we're living and dwelling in a, in, in a supernatural world, in a, in a place where the most important things are invisible. And God invites us into a life of faith. For now, we don't see with our eyes, right? We see with heart eyes of faith, belief. And, and God has set it up that way on purpose so that we might always be dependent Always be sort of desperately surrendering to him. God, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. You know what? I welcome you to live right there the rest of your life. In that tension, that authentic place. You're not pretending that you have perfect belief. Please, give me a break. As long as we're in this flesh, it's going to be some struggle. But the other thing I never want you to do again is to like condemn yourself for the doubt that sneaks in from time to time. It's part and parcel of what it means to live a life of faith that there's doubt connected to this. You hear me? So breathe a sigh of relief if you've ever like self-condemned on doubt. A life of faith, a life of belief includes an element of doubt almost all the time and we continue to seek and we go back to that which we can trust right here. The written word will speak of it and then it will bring reassurance and it it will cure that doubt. It will move you the next step away from that doubt. 
See, this belief thing is, is essential in all of this. Why? Because we doubt. But then how about the severe warnings that reveal just what a priority believing really is? Mark 9, 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, that is to fade from their belief, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Do not mess with the belief of others is the warning here. Why? Because belief is central to everything about what it means to walk with Jesus, to know him, and about life. Life is about believing. Don't mess with the believing of these little ones. Again, it's the purpose of truth coming to light. The light, right? John 1, verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light. Speaking of John the Baptist here, right? So that all might believe through him. It doesn't say so that all might obey, you know, the laws. and it doesn't say so that everybody might go to church. It's about believing. Believing. That's why John the Baptist played the role that he played. Similar to the same role that the written word of God is playing today. Revealing, shedding light on the light so that we might believe. And more. It's constant, especially in the book of John, by the way. This whole theme of, of, of life and love and belief. All the way through the book of John, those three themes. John 2, verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So John's third chapter, right, is simply full of belief. It's core. It's like some of the verses that we memorized as children first. They're given to us so that we would believe the truth. John 3, verse 12. I told you earthly things and you did not believe. How will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? It's that challenge, right, of those that don't yet believe. And then in verse 15 of John chapter 3, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Then the really famous one in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes. Fill in the blank. You want to fill in the blank with something other than believing? We often do. It's how religions have been formed. It's why there's many denominations. It's why there's all kinds of culturally based things and why many people have just abandoned anything in the realm of religion forever because of the frustrations of how they might fill in that blank. But Jesus simplified it and said it's about believing my life-giving truth. Believe, believe, believe. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. Wow, there's the promise, right? There it is. John 3, verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, did you hear that verse? Because it brings the idea of obedience, obeying, right underneath the overall topic of believing. Let me read it for you again and understand that when you read the Bible in the New Testament, it talks about obeying. It really, in context, is talking about your faith, your belief in Jesus, the person, second person of, of the Godhead. Listen to the verse again, he, John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The contrast of believing is disobedience. We are best obeying when we're living a life of faith, believing. Just bring it back to believing. What is it that God's inviting me to believe right now in this situation in my life? 
What life-giving truth would in fact add something that I simply do not have right now as I'm dealing with this circumstance at work in this relationship? What am I not believing? What lie am I believing? And I need to bring my beliefs under the umbrella of God's truth so that, in fact, I will be walking in obedience to him because of my belief. My belief will be right, and my life will result in beauty. So we have this really crazy thing going on with regard to how we approach all of this, uh, the the word of God itself, and, and, and the word is to be believed. We've thought that the word was to be known, so it's about knowing, or maybe we've linked up some other verses and we've kind of isolated them. We've thought that it was really all about doing, right? Because faith without works is dead. And we've quoted that phrase out of its context and we've sort of messed around with that a little bit. And we've turned the whole thing into doing. You know, I, I, it's, your faith isn't real unless they're actually active and action. It's love and action and all of that kind of thing. Those are both great things. But really, it's about God wanting us to read and understand and, and believe. See, here are a couple of our mistakes as we approach the Bible which is written for us to believe. Because, by the way, just as a nugget here, the only thing that really brings about lasting change is, is, is when we believe something. And the way that we act out of a belief, then, is almost subconscious, then. And that's when you know it's taken over your life. That's when you, that's when you know that it's, it's part of you. It's actually your belief system. So, for example, I'm wondering if anybody in the room carefully examined your chair to make sure it would hold you up before you sat down this morning when you walked in here. No one did. Why? Because you guys walk by faith, (laughs) right? You believed that the chair would hold you up, and so you sat down. And that unconscious belief in you shaped your life. And the same thing can be true in your life with God. So here's some mistakes that we make with the Bible, right? First of all, we just don't read it. That's like the first mistake we make, isn't it? And the result of not reading it is simply ignorance. We, we will dwell in not knowing. We will dwell in having no clue to the treasure and the, and the resource and the beauty and the life that's there for us. We don't read. That's our first mistake, and the result is ignorance. The second one is that we read for knowledge. And this might be the biggest one in, in that stream of Christianity that I was raised in and trained in and so forth. We read for knowledge, and you know the result of that is arrogance. One hand, you don't read, and you get ignorance. On the other hand, you read for knowledge, and you get arrogance. And, and the Bible says that of itself, right? That it's about love, because knowledge without love, information without love, really is just arrogance. And so we don't read, and we have ignorance. We read for knowledge, and we have arrogance. Or we read to believe. I mean, excuse me, we read, we, we read to behave, to behave, and the result of that is self-righteousness. So we clean up our act a bit, we try to, you know, get our act, we try to put on an image, we, we obey the rules, and we're, we become kind of proud of that, kind of exploit that, and we put it on display, and we are a completely different person when no one's looking, or maybe just a slightly different person when no one's looking. Either way, there's an inconsistency there that gnaws at us in our gut, and we know, and those closest to us know. And self-righteousness results, and we end up being critical and judgmental toward other people, right? We compare our public behavior with their public behavior, and somehow we make sure that we measure up higher than them. Did you ever notice, as you read through the New Testament, that the one group of people Jesus most attacked were described that way? Self-righteous. They were the ones that were holding themselves up as better behaved than others. And he viciously attacked them. And then he died on the cross to save them 
from that wrong thinking. What a picture of grace. It's a beautiful thing. So we make, we make these mistakes. We don't read. We read for knowledge or we read to behave. But when we read to believe, we're actually transformed. That's when transformation takes place. So we can inform or we can conform or we can reform or we can settle for none of those and only go until finally we find transforming. Transformation. Which is really the promise of Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, which, by the way, is a description of both ungodly, sinful behavior, you know, against the law practices, as well as this world system of religion, which is godly-looking, holy-ish kinds of practices, righteous practices, which result in arrogance. Same thing. It's all of the world, right? It's not of God. But he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, here it is now, by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So in Scripture, the mind and the heart and the soul, the inward parts of a person, that which makes a person whole, that which lives beyond this body, that part of a person that drives them and motivates them, the value systems and the structures that are deep within that can't, can't be separated in any way, even though the body die, it would live on and carry on, we believe, right? The Bible teaches. That part of us is seeking transformation. And that transformation comes when we present our bodies as a sacrifice, living, when we conform our hearts and our minds and we renew it, we renew it through the truth, the life-giving truth of the written word where we find the living word. So we tell ourselves the truth until we actually believe it, and that is life change, which brings us to my final point, number three, right handling of the word. That is kind of the lesson, the message of life-giving truth, what life-giving truth is. So first of all, it's answering the invitation to believe, that you go to the Bible and, and what you're thinking is, okay, God's inviting me here to believe something. And then secondly, you identify the truth to be believed there. And then thirdly, we tell ourselves that truth until finally we actually believe it. All day long we tell ourselves that truth. All week long we tell ourselves that truth. So every week you're presented with a truth statement from up here somewhere, right? Or it's written down somewhere, or, or you, you deal with it in a life group somewhere, or whatever, and, and as you do, you, you keep telling yourself that life-giving truth until finally we believe it. It's a process, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to believe some of these things that God invites us to believe. So let me close this time with a demonstration that you could follow. I'm, I'm in John 6. If you brought a Bible and want to turn to John 6, you can do that. These are very familiar stories. And so I just want to point out a couple of things quickly as we go through here to see how easy it is to, in fact, identify and discover life-giving truth and then to tell yourself that truth until finally you believe it. So in John 6, it opens with the feeding of the 5,000. Very famous story. We all know that story. And in verse 14, it's summed up by saying, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, that is feeding 5,000 people after a boy's little lunch, right, which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. A statement of belief, perhaps. We know a lot of those people walked away from him later, so it wasn't a sincere belief. Doubt entered in, and they departed instead of re-upping their belief. So was that a description of true belief? One thing I know is that the disciples who served the food were believing. Can you picture this? Picture those grown men standing in a circle facing each other with baskets in their arms that are even now overflowing with bread and fish. It's falling off in front of them all around their feet. And they're looking at each other with silly grins on their faces. Can you imagine being one of them in that day? 
He invited them in the process to live it out and work it out. And I'm thinking somebody's going, let's do that again. Right? Amazing. Amazing. And, and so here's the truth statement that the word invites us to believe. Jesus is the true prophet in the world. And that's vitally important today because many are claiming to be the true prophet. No, it's Jesus. Then the passage goes on in John 6 into Jesus walking on the water, and then he goes on to talking to people about all of those challenges of faith with regard to the walking on the water scene and all of that. We get down to verse 28, and he says, Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And watch what Jesus says. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God. Here it is. Here it comes. Did you want to know? I'm going to tell you. Here, I'm delivering it right now. The works of God, here it is, is that you believe in him whom he has sent. Can it get any clearer than that? This life is a life of faith, not a life of action. Okay, it's action that is drawn out of true and believing faith. I'll give you that. But until we back up and recognize that any actions that we just do on the outside, we can do for a short period of time. But if it hasn't transformed us from the inside out, but in fact we're trying to transform ourselves somehow from doing all the right things, hoping that it'll get down into our heart in some way, never. That has never worked in human history. So we ask God to transform our beliefs at a heart level, and then we end up doing the works of God. Jesus himself said it. The works are to believe in me. He's the living word who lives inside of us and wants to live his life bursting out of us. That's life. That's reality. That's passion. That's all that he has offered to us. The work of God is to believe. So the truth statement here is, the work of God is to believe in Jesus. You see how you can form these? You can read, you can identify it. If you read it simply for what the Bible is actually just saying right there, plain on the page, it's there. Then verse 35, Jesus said to them, very famous words, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So the true statement's there. You're getting this by now, right? Believers will never thirst. Believers will have eternal life. Verse 40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. There's another true statement. Believers will be raised on the last day. It's just plain. It's simple. There it is. It bounces right off the text. And then to unbelievers, he says, beginning at verse 41, all the way through the end of the chapter, he says in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And that's a key verse for our pray and watch lifestyle, isn't it? We believe that God is drawing, so we ask that he would draw our friends into relationship and life with him. Verse 47, he who believes has eternal life. And finally, that incredible conclusion in verse 66, Peter's confession of faith, after he repeats the word belief a couple more times in verses 60 to 65, now in 66, he says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, here it is, crazy, right? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And then, then here's our opportunity in life. Here's the reality of life. Here's that 
line that is drawn, the tight wire that we walk, right? Belief and unbelief. Believe and live. He is the life-giving truth. So I end with a story of truth and belief and God's role in inviting us. I mentioned before that we live in San Francisco and we meet with a a community of people that have become like family with us. They are not believers in Jesus. We meet every Sunday night. We eat together. We discuss life issues together. They all had babies in those last couple of years. And so we're just like the designated grandparents now because they don't have any in the city. And one of our friends in the course of a discussion one night said, you know, I want to believe, but I just can't. That's a genuine moment on the progress and the journey, isn't it? I love that. I I love my friends for their honesty and their genuineness, their authenticity. They don't have to pretend like a lot of us Christians do, right? They can just be real. Another one chimes in and says, don't you think that belief just happens to you? (laughs) You either do or you don't. Which, of course, threw us into this incredible conversation about God's grace. Yeah, you're right. We can't drum this up on our own. There is no work that we can add. Not even believing is a work from our own initiative that we can add to the process and somehow claim credit. God is the one who saves. And I said, no, you're actually right. You're absolutely right. In fact, someday, here's what I think is going to happen. One of you here, and there's like 12 people in the room, one of you is going to walk through our apartment door, and I'm going to see something twinkling in your eyes that I never saw before. And you're going to say, God help me. I believe. I don't even know how it happened. I didn't yesterday. I do now. There it is. That's it. That's what we're living and breathing and praying and living and watching and loving for. And he said, yeah, probably not. (laughs) So for this reason, I have said to you, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And that is why we seek, steeping ourselves in the Bible And he will grant every seeker life-giving truth. He will give us himself. Because these words, after all, were written so that we might believe. Bow your heads with me, would you? Father, I pray that you would make us believers. And that we would see this believing thing as not just something that we believed in once. Oh, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that. And then let it go. But in fact, to enter into a life that's full of the adventure of believing on a moment-by-moment basis that somehow believing will give us life believing will regenerate us believing will will draw us into an adventure that we never dreamed was possible that even in our sin even in our doubt even in the struggle even in the argumentation that we sometimes feel even in the way that that the world and all of our responsibilities sometimes distract us you have designed them because you're the living word jesus and you are there you've designed each of those circumstances every single person at work Everyone in our neighborhood, everyone at school, on the team, anywhere that it might be, everyone has been designed by you to shed light on our next step in the journey. If only we would believe in you, see you, answer your invitation, and believe in the truth that you're delivering to us. So, Father, I pray that we would all test any kind of truth statement against what your your word says here written. But then I pray, Lord, that we would believe, that we would actually throw our lives into the true and full and and reckless belief in it until, Lord, you change us from the inside out and give us life. So thank you in advance for the adventure. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name.